The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And for the rest of us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, looking at the parable of the talents. You know, we're, we've been talking about the end of time, the end of history, as we've been working our way through Revelation. And I don't know, I didn't mean for it to correspond this way, but I wanted to preach on the parable of the talents, and it just so happens that the parable of the talents is about the end of history, about time of judgment, and when that all... So it, it corresponds with what we're learning in Revelation. I just, I didn't plan it that way, but in God's providence, it is the case. And so we are looking at a passage that is speaking about the end of time, the final judgment, the parable of the talents. Mentioned already, it's one of my favorite, and it's a parable about faithfulness. That's the main theme of the parable, faithfulness. And we're going to dig into that soon. But first, we need to talk about parables themselves and how to interpret them. Because it's possible to misinterpret parables, to overinterpret them, actually. There's cases in history of overinterpretation of parables that lead to some very creative, but nevertheless horribly wrong, interpretations of a parable. So what is a parable? Well, an easy way to think of it is a parable is simply an extended metaphor or simile. Just an extended metaphor or simile. A parable is a story or illustration with earthly elements from which Jesus intends for us to glean vital spiritual truths. A parable is a story or illustration with earthly elements from which Jesus intends for us to glean vital spiritual truths. A metaphor is a figure of speech that uses an expression to represent a corresponding reality that is like that expression in some way. For example, God is a rock. That's a metaphor, because we know that God is not literally a rock. But you're meant to think about how is God like a rock? He's stable. You can build your life on God. He is trustworthy. He is strong. He is immovable. So you start to ponder a metaphor, and it gives you insight into who God is. And that's what a parable is meant to do. Jesus intends for us to ponder over the parables and to glean vital spiritual truths from them. And that's the same for the case in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. Now, he's going to indicate what this, is, this parable has reference to specifically, and he does it in verse 1 of chapter 25. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like... And he goes on to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. And then in verse 14, he says, It will be like... What? With the kingdom of heaven, the future dwelling of God with his people. It will be like this. This is how you could summarize God's rule over his people. It will be like this. And so that's what the parable of the talents is pointing back to. It is like the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so what Jesus is want, wants to have happen here is that these stories would include normal earthly everyday elements that Jesus's listeners would recognize and then they would take from this story or illustration important truths about God, about Christ, about the final judgment, about faithfulness and so on from this parable that he's given us that have these basic earthly elements. They're meant to be catchy, they're meant to be interesting, they're meant to grab your attention. Jesus was the master storyteller. Jesus was the master preacher. We are but small in comparison to Jesus. He could capture and enrapture a crowd with these wonderful, illuminating, interesting parables. And this is another one of them. And so Jesus is going to 
share this parable with his disciples and the intention is for them to ponder over it and to glean from it spiritual insight. Vital, important, eternally important spiritual insight. Well, how should we interpret parables? I've already mentioned that this is important. One of the best principles, and this is really a simple one, one of the best principles, most important principles to remember when interpreting a parable is not to overinterpret it. Be careful that you don't overinterpret it. It is unwise to attach a corresponding spiritual reality to every element in the parable. And let me explain to you what I mean. You don't want to do that unless it's justified by the text. There is a parable where Jesus says, I will explain to you how each element of this story corresponds with a, a specific spiritual reality. But he doesn't do that here. We want to be careful that we don't attach corresponding spiritual realities to the elements of the story unless we have warrant to do that by the immediate or greater context. If you do, do, if you do attach those each element of the story to a specific spiritual reality, it could lead towards allegorizing. And the most famous example of this is that great 5th century theologian Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps some of you are aware of this. Augustine took every element of that parable and attached it to a corresponding spiritual reality, even though he had zero justification to do that. For example, he said that the man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho was Adam, Uh, Jerusalem itself was the heavenly city of peace from which Adam fell when he sinned. The robbers that beat him and robbed him were the devil and his angels. The robbers stripped and beat him, and this was the devil and his angels stripping Adam of his mortality and uh, persuading him to sin. The Samaritan is Christ, the innkeeper is Paul, and so on. And that's very creative. It's very imaginative. However, it has nothing to do with what Jesus was communicating in that parable. The the main point of that parable was to answer the lawyer's question when he said, who is my neighbor? As he was trying to wiggle out from his responsibility to love his neighbor. And Jesus says, I'll give you an answer to that question. Here it is. That was the point of the parable. Augustine, for all of his great work notwithstanding, completely biffed it on this particular passage. But... We won't be too hard on him. It's easy to get carried away. But when interpreting parables, an important principle is to not overinterpret them. And we're helped by remembering this. Look for the main point of the parable. That doesn't mean you cast aside details. We're going to look at details today. But you want the details to fit under what that main idea is. What is the main message Jesus is communicating in the story? And once you've grasped that idea, then it's easier actually to understand the details of the story. And we've already mentioned that the, one of the main ideas of this passage, of this parable, is faithfulness. About faithfulness. That's what it is. And when you're interpreting the passage, look for uh, elements that are common in the text, that are common throughout the New Testament or throughout the Gospels. For example, the master-servant relationship is clearly corresponding to Jesus' relationship to his disciples because he uses that motif all throughout the Gospels. And he uses it actually in the context in verses uh, 45 through 51 uh, of the previous chapter, in chapter 24. In the Old and New Testament, talents, something that we're going to look at in a moment, talents refer to measurements of weight typically used to measure the weights of precious metals. And so we want to consider that as well. So what you do is you look at the main idea, try to capture the main idea, and then try to understand the details of the text 
under that main idea and also paying attention to the common elements that Jesus uh, uses in the text so that you can determine what they stand for. But we've already noted that Jesus says it will be like a man going on a journey. We've already noted that this is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's rule over his people. This is what it's like. It's like this. It's like a man going on a journey who calls his servants to himself and he entrusts to them some of his property. The master has three servants, and to each servant he entrusts them a different amount of his property, and when he returns, he calls his servants back to him to settle their accounts. And the first two multiplied their master's wealth, and they received a commendation, and they even received a promotion. But the third servant, he didn't multiply his master's wealth, and he received a stern rebuke and a harsh punishment. So like we've noted already, that's just a a real quick summary of the parable of the talents. So this parable has something to do with faithfulness. You have two kinds of servants, faithful servants and an unfaithful servant. Over the, to the faithful servant, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will put you over much. So you have the commendation, you have the promotion. And then he says, welcome into the joy of your master. He actually welcomes them into his home. But to the unfaithful servant, he actually rebukes rebukes him strongly. And then as we'll see, the, the, the metaphor, the earthly elements of the metaphor actually shift immediately over into spiritual realities because this final servant is actually, Jesus says, cast into the outer darkness, which refers to hell. But we can go deeper than just giving a brief summary and saying it's about faithfulness. We would be remiss if that's all we did. If we just had a 10-minute sermon this morning and said, here's an overview of the parable. It's about faithfulness. Go be on your way and have a good Sunday. Now, some of you might appreciate that, but we need to go a little deeper this morning. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a master who goes on a journey and he entrusts his property to his servants Do we have any warrant in the text to attach spiritual realities to these things? And we would say immediately, yes. The context is the end of the age. Chapter 24 is where Jesus starts talking about the end of the age. Cliff has already mentioned chapter 24, Matthew, quite a bit already because Matthew 24 is where Jesus talks about the great tribulation and the tribulation that's coming upon the earth. Chapter 24 and chapter 25 of Matthew are talking about the end of the age. They're talking about the final judgment. They're talking about Jesus' return. So we have every warrant in the text, given the context and given also the context of the Gospels themselves, to attach Jesus' reference to master and servants to Jesus and his disciples. Who is the master? It's Jesus. Who are the servants? They are Jesus' disciples, those of us who have come to Christ and trusted in him, who make a profession of faith in Christ. Those are the servants. Well, what is the property? So that's, that's, I think that's pretty easy to to determine, and we're not going overboard or over-interpreting by saying it's clearly Jesus, the master here is Jesus, and the servants are his people. But what else? What are the What's the property? It says, for it to be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. The question now is, what is this property? 
He distributes it in the form of talents. We see that in the next verse. He gave five talents, two talents, and one talent. So that is how he's going to divide up his property at this present time. He's dividing them up in talents. What were talents? Well, fortunately, we're given a whole Old Testament full of descriptions of what talents were. Talents were weight measurements. They were used to measure gold and silver. Just an example, when the king, queen of Sheba visited Solomon, you might remember that story, she was amazed at all that he had and is a gift to honor him and for all the success that he had enjoyed due to God's blessing, she gives him 120 talents of gold. And accounting for some imprecision, this is probably about 9,100 pounds of gold, 9,100 pounds of gold. You're thinking, wow, that is a lot of gold. And it is a lot of gold. I mean, that's a lot of gold. Imagine what we could do with all that gold, right? Well, it may sound like a lot, and it was, but according to the Gold Field Mineral Services, the research company that produces the annual gold survey, they say that the total amount of gold in the world is about 171,000 tons, which is 377 million pounds of gold, okay? So... The Queen of Sheba only gave Solomon 0.002% of the world's total gold, so a great amount, but nevertheless, not overwhelming. <laughs> in our story, Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly what the talent is, at least not initially. He says he entrusted, the servants were entrusted with talents. Now, you hear that word and we think, oh, I'm talented at basketball. That's not, that's not what the word's referring to. It's talking about this weight measurement. He entrusted to them talents. And what we've seen in the Old Testament is that this refers to a weight of precious metals, so it's likely referring to precious metals here. But even more specifically, you can see in verse 18 and verse 27 that this was money. Verse 27, Jesus rebukes the unfaithful servant says, you ought to have invested my money. So what are these talents? Well, it's a form of money. And this word translated money here is used in Acts 3.6, where it's clearly referring to silver, and it can refer to silver. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that the, the master here is entrusting to his servants talents of silver. And for the first servant who got five talents, as we'll see, that would have amounted to about 400 pounds of silver. The second servant would have received about 150 pounds, and the third servant would have received 75 pounds. So if this is a reference to silver, just using February 9th as a reference point, on February 9th, silver was about 88 cents a gram. A talent is about 34 kilograms. So the first servant was entrusted in terms of today's values, $150,000 worth of property. Now, you can check my math. That's fine. Go ahead and check my math. The point is, is, this, the point is just to say that this is some serious property, okay? This, this is not all the master's property, as we'll see, but this is serious property. $150,000 to the first, $60,000 to the second, and about $30,000 to the third. It's a lot of property. We need to note, however, as we've already seen, as, as Tim read the parable, this is an unequal distribution of property, wasn't it? The first one receives five talents. The second, two talents, and the, one, the, the last, only one. What's the basis of this discrepan discrepancy? We see it here. Jesus is very clear. He says, to the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according 
to his ability. This is going to have profound implications for us as we apply this text to us. But we need to note that the basis of the unequal allocation was the ability of each respective servant. It's a simple fact that we each possess different abilities and capabilities. Isn't that just, that's just the case. That's just life, isn't it? Something you have to reckon with early on. I had to reckon with that reality corresponding to basketball talent very early on in my life. (laughs) But a wise employer, get this, a wise employer or master or parent will adjust the distribution of responsibilities on the basis of the employee's or the servant's or the child's ability. That's just wisdom. That's just wisdom. And this master is wise. He doesn't burden the servant with more than he can reasonably reasonably manage, nor does he demoralize them by not giving them enough to do. It's a perfect allotment of allotment corresponding to ability. That is great wisdom on the part of this master. Each servant is entrusted with the amount of wealth that he can adequately manage. Well, the response of the first two servants is is quite wonderful. Let's see what happens here. He says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. So let's just stop right there. What do you have with these first two servants? They leave immediately after receiving this allotment and they go and they trade with this wealth. That word for trade is used often throughout the New Testament to refer to work or to doing good or to doing good works. That's the word. So what did these servants do? They took their allotment and they got busy. They got to work. And they traded and they worked and they multiplied this allotment so that the master got a 100% return on his investment. And now that's a pretty good management of wealth, especially if this journey was only like a year or two, right? So here, the the point is, is we're not told how long the journey is, we're not told any of that. The point is simply to say that this was an excellent job at handling the master's wealth. You gave me five, here's five more. I went out, as soon as you gave it to me, I went out and worked, I traded, I, I managed it well so that you not only have the five you started with, but I earned you five more. Your wealth is growing on account of my diligence. Same with the one with two. They applied concerted effort, they worked with what they are given, they multiplied their share, each providing 100% return on the master's investment. Sadly, the third servant didn't act this way. What did he do? What did he do? But he would receive the one talent, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He buried his allotment in the ground. And now you might say that this move is less risky. Less risky, right? Because you can just, when the master comes back, you can just dig it up and give the master back exactly what he had. Nothing is lost. See, I didn't lose it. Unfortunately, that's not the response he gets. He doesn't get a positive response from the master because by burying the talent, he ensured that it could not grow beyond its original value. Sure, you could get the original back. You could get your original capital back, but you get it with zero growth. Now, any of us in here who 
went to a financial planner or investor and asked them to take care of our wealth. And they said, after 5, 10, 20 years, whatever, here, you invested 100000 with me and you got your 100000 back. And you'd be like, that's terrible. <laughs> You're fired, right? Well, so we can see, we can, Jesus knows, we can, we can recognize already that that's, that's not a good use or management of resources. These are two approaches to wealth management are entirely different. The first two take their share. They work with it. They multiply it. The, the, the third servant hides it in the ground. But I want us to see how they respond to the, their master. What happens? Well, when he comes to call to account their service, what, is, what happens? It says, verse 19, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so also this one with two talents came forward and saying the same thing and got the same response. They both receive a warm commendation, don't they? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's a high compliment. That's a high compliment from a master to a servant. Particularly in this day and age. They both receive a warm commendation. They also receive a promotion. But also we note that the Master himself has not entrusted all of his property to them. It's not like he had a total of five, two, seven. It's not like he had a total of eight talents and he left everything to them on his journey and then came back. No, because he says, you've been faithful over this little part. I'm going to give you more to manage. So he had more of his property than what he entrusted to them because then he promotes them and says, you are going to be over this greater portion. And now financial remuneration is fitting for appropriate, and it's appropriate for work rendered. Correct? We would all agree with that. That's the way the world works. You work and you're paid for it. But it is also a blessing to be entrusted with more responsibility because that means your employee, or your employer rather, recognizes your skill, your integrity, your trustworthiness, and they entrust you with more. Here the master is happy to give more of his property to the faithful servants because he can trust them to manage it well, so this is a double commendation. Not only well done, good and faithful servant, that's the first commendation, but here's the second part of it. I'm going to set you over even more. That means I see you as faithful. I see you as someone who has integrity. I see you as skillful. I see you as useful. And I'm going to set you over more. It's a double commendation. But he also welcomes these faithful servants into his home. Enter into the joy of your master. So this is almost a familial relationship at this point. You've managed these things well. Enter into my joy. Enter into my home. Expectedly, the third servant, right? If you're listening, just imagine if you're listening here to Jesus' story, you, you know this isn't going to go well for the third servant. This is not a good situation for him saying to the one with five talents who multiplied his talents, well done, good and faithful servant, saying the one with two, well done, good and faithful servant. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. His response is different than the first two faithful servants, isn't it? How did the first two faithful servants respond when they were called to an account? The master called them to an account. The first thing they said is they they gave an inventory. You gave me five. The original capital invested was five talents, and I doubled it, five more talents. That was it. That was the response. You gave me responsibility, and here's what I return. Full stop. And then the master gave them their commendation. How does the unfaithful servant begin? He doesn't begin with inventory. He begins with indicting the master. What does he say? Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you gathered no, scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Due to the, the master's so-called, and I, so-called is an important phrase here, Due to the master's so-called reputation of being a hard man, the servant hid his talent in the ground out of alleged fear of that master in order to be able to just give him back what he had originally invested. Here are two questions we have to ask at this point. Was it Because this, this will unlock, I think, for us what's, what's happening here in the heart of this unfaithful servant. The two questions are these. Was it really true that the master was a hard man? Was that really the case? Was he right in saying this about the master? So that it was kind of almost a legitimate excuse. Like everybody knows you're kind of a jerk, right? So you can understand why I would hide this in the ground. Is that legit? Was was he legitimate for saying that? Two, was it really fear that compelled the servant to hide his talent in the ground? Was it really fear... My answer to both of those questions is no. No, the master was not a hard man, and no, it wasn't fear that compelled the unfaithful servant to hide his talent in the ground. How do we know that? We know that not because Derek is so clever. We know that because the master here calls the unfaithful servant's bluff. Notice what he says. But his, verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. This is important here. This next sentence is important because of the way it's phrased. In your Bibles, it might have a question mark, and I think that's appropriate. Because this is what he is doing. The master is saying, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. In other words, if that was really the basis you're working from, if that was really the case, then you would have done this. You would have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received my own with interest. What's going on here? The, the, the point is, is that Jesus, the, the master calls the bluff and saying, if you really believed that I was a, a hard and unyielding and unjust person like this, then you would have just put this money with the bank, so at the very least, I would have had at least a little more than what I first invested. If you really thought I was a hard man who reaped where he did not snow, you would have invested my money with the bankers. You wouldn't have needed to do anything except for just go over to the bank and give them the money. Nothing. Nothing would have been required of you. Just a little click of the mouse, right? Just, and just give it to the bankers. Just let it earn interest. But you hid it in the ground. You weren't afraid. You were just wicked and lazy. 
You don't love or respect me, and the way you manage my possession proves it. That's what's going on. But here's, here's the reality. The reality is that the master was not someone who reaped where he did not sow and gathered where he scattered no seed. That wasn't the case. The reason we know that is because, number one, that would have been horribly unjust to demand your servant to produce something for which you provided no opportunity and no resources would be simply unrighteous and wrong. And he's not portrayed that way in this passage, this master. Secondly, and even proving this last point, the master actually demonstrates that he is wise and gracious. We've already seen that. He has already disproven in the parable that the third servant is dead wrong in his assessment of the master. That's why we know it's a total farce. A so-called reputation. Who's really saying that about this master? Well, it's you. You're the one who's saying it. Why? Because we already saw that this is the kind of master who allots to his servants according to their ability. That's the exact opposite of reaping where you did not sow. You have an ability. I will match your ability with your allotment. I'm going to set you up for success. Does that sound like a hard man? The third servant is dead wrong. It's a farce. It's an excuse. Well, what is this? What's happening here? The third servant's problem wasn't the master, was it? The third servant's problem was not the master. The problem was his heart toward the master. He didn't love his master. He didn't see him as good. He didn't respect him. Because if he had, he would have done something different with that wealth he had been entrusted with. It was a heart issue. And as a result of his unfaithfulness, he receives a demotion. He says in verse 28, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and to the, he will have an abundance. But... From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30. Now here's the shift, kind of a jarring shift from metaphor to just straightforward. This is what happens if you're unfaithful with the things I entrust to you. Jesus is saying, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. So just because he buried it safely in the ground... He is now going to be judged for eternity, yes, because it revealed his heart toward the master. So what do we, what do we intended to glean out of this passage? What does Jesus, well, you probably already gleaned some things from it, but let's go a little deeper and ask, what more can we glean? What does Jesus intend for us to glean from this passage? First of all, we need to notice the theological setting of this passage. We've already said that in Matthew 24 and 25, we're talking about the end of the age, the final judgment. So this passage is intended to help his disciples think about the joy of faithfulness and the dreadfulness of being unfaithful to the Lord Jesus. At the very basic, Jesus' disciples should conclude that their master has entrusted to them some of his property, and that he intends for them to make good use of it and so that he can get a return on investment. At very basic, that's what his disciples should glean. I think an important question we want to ask, though, is what is this property? What is this property? 
In the parable, it's physical wealth. That's obvious. That's clear. It's physical wealth. The master entrusted material wealth to his servants with the intention that they would multiply it and give him a solid return. But should we therefore conclude that Jesus' main concern in this passage is that his disciples become excellent wealth managers so that they can take the wealth that they've been given and multiply it, get 100% return? Is that what he is talking about? Doubling their money for the glory of God? No, there's nothing wrong with seeking to invest wisely. That's even tacitly approved of in this passage. But that's not all that Jesus is referring to here. And why would we say that? Because the story clearly represents Jesus as the master. And the question is, is what does Jesus own? What does he own? He owns everything. He owns everything. Everything in heaven and earth, Jesus Christ owns. Paul says this, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus said before he ascended and he sent sent out his disciples on the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus owns everything and everyone on this planet. He owns every star in the heavens. He owns every being in the spiritual realm. So I think it's reasonable to conclude, given that correspondence, the master to Jesus, that these talents represent everything that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to his disciples. Everything. In other words, everything you own, every person you know, every opportunity you have is ultimately owned by your master, and he has entrusted to you these possessions and relationships and opportunities to you. But let's be more specific. What has the Lord entrusted to you? Just just consider it for a moment. He's entrusted to you your money and your wealth in whatever form that's in, whether it is in cash or investments, in durable goods, whatever it is, in a business. He's entrusted that to you. He's entrusted to you material goods and various resources. He's entrusted to you a job with which you create wealth and develop relationships and care for others through your business or whatever it might be. He's entrusted to you physical health and energy. Some of us have better physical health and some of us have more energy than others, but nevertheless, Christ has entrusted to you that physical health and energy no matter what it is. He's gifted you natural gifts and abilities, intellectual gifts, physical gifts, creative gifts, leadership gifts, administrative gifts, teaching gifts, entrepreneurial gifts. Jesus has entrusted that to you. He's entrusted to you your family members, your mom and your dad and your grandparents and your siblings and your own children. He's entrusted to you your husband. He's entrusted to you your wife. He's entrusted to you your cousins and aunts and uncles. He's entrusted to you with a place to live, a home or an apartment. He's entrusted to you with relationships at work and in your neighborhood. He's entrusted to you with your entrusted you with the local church and your relationships there. He's entrusted you with time that he wants you to manage well for his glory. He's entrusted you with spiritual gifts for the common good. He's entrusted you with the gospel. He's entrusted you with the great commission. So I would submit to you, therefore, that the talents in this passage that Jesus has entrusted to you is everything in your life. But it's not enough to just say that Jesus has entrusted you these relationships and these resources We must ask, for what end has he entrusted these things to you? For what end? For what end has Christ given you all of these possessions, 
given you this, this portion of his possessions to rule over. In the passage, it was multiplication of wealth that characterized the faithful servant. That's what faithfulness in money management looks like. You're given money to manage. The anticipation is that you would manage well, and managing it well means that it is multiplied. It grows. That's successful money management. What does it look like for a disciple of Jesus to steward Jesus' possessions faithfully? Well, there's only one standard for faithfulness. There's only one standard for faithfulness. It's not the culture. It's not the society's version of what that would look like. There's only one standard for the disciple, and it's the Word of God. What Jesus intends for us to conclude is this, that he has allotted to each of us relationships, our natural abilities, our spiritual gifts, our wealth, our family situation, as wonderful or as difficult as it might be, and our time and our energy to be used for the glory of God and according to Scripture. I'm not going to just leave it there in that general sense. We're going to dig in a little deeper, but that's, we want to set the stage right there. So let's go on to the second point. We need to note the initial response of these three servants when they're given their allotment, their initial response. The first two immediately set out to improve on their master's investment, immediately. They were diligent. They worked hard to multiply their master's wealth. This approach is contrasted clearly with the third servant who was, as the master says, Wicked and slothful. What was the difference? What was the real difference? Were the first two servants just more naturally energetic and and diligent than the third servant naturally was? Now, if we took this interpretation, what it would lead us to conclude is that Jesus is more pleased with those who have a natural bent for hard work. And that would be a kind of works righteousness. That would be kind of salvation by works. So we can't take that interpretation. Rather, these two different responses indicate that there were two different underlying heart motivations that give rise to how they responded to the entrusting of that wealth from the master. The first two faithful servants clearly had a love for and a respect for the master. So they handled his money well. A happy relationship already existed between them because this is indicated by the warm commendation and the fact that they receive and the fact that he welcomes them into his home with joy. So I would submit to you that there is already a happy, respectful relationship between the faithful servants and the master which is what gives rise to their proper stewarding of his wealth. This isn't salvation by works. This is an indication of where their heart was at. The third servant, however, and the reason we know that is because the third servant is characterized as, here it is, wicked. The third servant, however, Master says, he says, you are a wicked and slothful servant. He obviously didn't know the Master well, or he would have never said those Horrible things about him, you hard man. Just making stuff up. Just slandering his reputation. So he obviously doesn't know him. He doesn't love him. He doesn't respect him. And for that reason, he mismanages his master's wealth. This didn't have anything to do with a natural bent towards diligence. It had everything to do with the heart of the servant toward the master. 
And the return that they gave and how they managed the master's wealth was an indication of where their heart was with the master. And sadly, this unfaithful steward is cast into outer darkness. So this parable is not promoting salvation by works. Rather, this passage corresponds with the rest of Scripture in terms of its overall message, which teaches that our stewardship of Christ's possessions is an indication of our heart towards the Lord Jesus. That's why... Now, now you might be thinking, so get more busy and prove it. No, no, no. That's why our aim in life is to be more and more able to see Jesus Christ in the gospel, seeing his goodness and his love and his grace and his mercy, because it is this sight of Christ that then enables us to steward his possessions well. You, you might conclude, if we just stop there, to say, oh, dear, I really need to get busy and prove that I'm a faithful servant. You need to see Jesus as the good and faithful master first. When you see Jesus as the good and faithful master, you become what? A good and faithful servant. But we also must heed the warning of this passage. That's why it's here. You can't just skip over it. A professing Christian cannot enjoy. Here's the implication of what is of what we see happening here with the unfaithful servant. The implication is this. A professing Christian cannot enjoy assurance of their salvation if they have no interest in managing Christ's possessions for his glory. If you have a, a, a Christian, a professing Christian cannot enjoy any assurance of their salvation if they have no interest in managing their possessions and wealth and opportunities and relationships for the glory of God, the good of his church, and the further, furtherance of the Great Commission. What does this mean? It means that genuine believers have a heart for people. They have a heart to see them saved and well cared for in Christ's church. And those people who have no heart for Christ's church cannot say that they have a heart for their Savior. It's not, out of a, it's not coincidental that this parable is flanked by two other parables. Look over in verse 25, uh, 45 rather, of, of chapter 24. Because you might be wondering, why are you pressing this issue of caring for Christ's people all of a sudden? Well, it's because that is the theme already starting in verse 45 of chapter 24 that will continue over to chapter 25. Let me tell you what I mean. In chapter 24, verses 25 and following, faithfulness is characterized by treating the, the fellow, your fellow servants well. Watch what Jesus says. Who is then as the wise and faithful servant? whom the master set over his household to give them their food and their proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing. When he comes, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So their faithfulness is characterized by caring for Jesus' household well. But then you can jump over to chapter 25, and Jesus says this, Who are the sheep that are welcome into uh, the heavenly kingdom that had been prepared for them before the foundation of the world? The, this, is the, this is how they were characterized. 
Jesus says in verse 34 of chapter 25, Come, all you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. And how do they respond? They're like, when did we, when did we do that? It, we're just kind of living our life here. We're just kind of loving people and, and loving, loving the church and, and loving the people you've entrusted to us. And, and, and Jesus says this, he says, when you did, uh, they say, when did we see a sick person or visit you and so on? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So the concern, the burden of this section is care for God's people. Care for the church, care about the great commission and so on. So faithful stewarding of the talents that God has given us, wealth, time, opportunity, gifting, etc., will, ex- will be expressed in large measure in how we care for people, especially God's people. Third, as we are approaching the end here, let's consider the attitude of the faithful servants. Continue, con- consider the attitude of the faithful servants. And here I think we're going to find some, some insight for freedom and joy and contentment in, in your Christian life. So let's uh, examine this as we, as we end up here. Each servant was given the amount that corresponded with their ability. We saw that at the beginning. They did not approach Jesus and begin to compare themselves with the other servant. The, the one with five didn't say, hey, it would have been a lot easier to have just the two, nor did the two say, hey, you should have entrusted me more with, with more than just two and given me the five. What they did is they looked, their eyes are on the master, you gave me five, Here's five plus what I multiply. Here's two plus what I multiply. They're not looking around in envy or disappointment. Christ had given them each an allotment that fit their ability. So they were satisfied with what they had been given because it fit with their ability. And then they worked diligently to multiply it. And this is just so vital to our happiness and contentment in the Christian life. Christ personally, Christ personally, allots you a portion of his possessions according to your ability, and he only expects that you are faithful in what he has given you, not someone else. What he has given you, your family situation, your job, your place of work, your finances, your spiritual gifts, your natural abilities. We each have different backgrounds, varying levels of biblical training, Christian experience, levels of wealth, different skills and natural abilities. We live in different neighborhoods. We have different family situations. But Christ has entrusted all of these things to you for the building up of his church, the furthering of the Great Commission, for providing for your family, for the spreading of the gospel, providing for other families if you're a business owner, for serving others through good works, for exercising dominion over that small portion of the earth that he has granted you. He's given you these things. He has entrusted to you these things according to your ability. See, Jesus is wise and he he is gracious. So he only gives you according to what your ability is so you won't be burdened by an impossible task and you won't be dishonored by not being given enough to care for. You see that? See how wise and gracious the Savior is? 
according to your ability, perfectly corresponds with your ability, so that you won't be overburdened with an impossible task where he comes reaping where he did not sow. But also, he gives you enough so you don't feel dishonored that you weren't given more responsibility. The one with two wasn't looking around going, oh, if only I would have had a larger allotment. Then you could have seen some great things from me. No, that wasn't the case at all. And I don't know about you, but I am tempted, I am tempted to look around at others and the responsibilities that they have and the roles that they have in the church and, and elsewhere and the family situations that they might have, and I can be tempted to become discontent. But you know what I do? Not perfectly, but I, 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 what I try to do is that, that I remind myself that Christ has entrusted to me the responsibilities that correspond to my ability. I think sometimes, hey, I'd like to write that book. I'd like to, to be able to have that kind of influence for Christ. But Jesus knows that those things are beyond my ability and would eventually crush me by their weight. Instead, I'm reminded by this passage that Christ in his infinite wisdom has allotted to me a portion of his possessions that corresponds perfectly with my ability and he, accept, he, he simply expects for me to manage that portion, not another one. When my heart is firmly fixed on that truth, I am happy, I am content, and guess what? I'm diligent. And so are you. When your heart is fixed on that truth, that Christ is the one who has given you what he has given you, and it corresponds with perfectly with your abilities that he has given you, as we'll see in a moment, you are left with happiness, contentment, and in fact, it translates to diligence. It also means that we can't look down on other Christians, right? Consider this. We can't look down on other Christians because they have been given a smaller, what seems to be a smaller allotment than we have. Even our natural abilities and relationships and spiritual gifts and educational background and family situation are all gifts of undeserved, unmerited grace. Christ not only entrusts you his possessions according to your, your ability, he's the one who gave you the ability. It's all grace. So there's no grounds for boasting. There's no grounds for looking down on another person due to their, the size of their allotment, the size of your allotment. If we are going to follow the example of these faithful servants, we keep our eyes on the good and faithful master and we work with the allotment that he has entrusted to us and we thank him for it and we're grateful for it. Finally, let's note the kindness of the master. The kindness of the master. He says to these two faithful servants, well done, good and faithful servant. How can this be? We should read passages like this and just stop and just be stunned that someday Jesus is going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a passage in Romans that talks about God praising his people. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 that says that God is going to commend his faithful servants. He's going to commend us. The, the creator of the universe, the, our holy God, is going to look at us someday and say, well done, good and faithful servant. How can that be? How can that be? Well, we know it because he's already provided us with everything we need. He's saved us. He's forgiven us our sin. He's justified us. He's washed us by the Holy Spirit. We belong to him. We're his servants. He's our gracious Lord who tenderly loved us and laid down his life for us. Now he pours out his spirit and gives us every spiritual material resource we need to fulfill his calling on our lives. You have everything you need. Everything you need to fulfill his calling on your life. You could say that Jesus is setting you up 
for success. He's setting you up to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He's not just sticking the carrot out there and you, oh, I hope I get there. He's giving you everything you need. He's truly setting you up for success like any wise employer or parent would do. He's creating a situation where each of his people will someday hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But for our part, it should be the singular aim in our life to strive after that. To desire to please our master, to hold out before us that crowning jewel of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. To long for that. Is that what you long for? We don't labor for Christ out of hope that our labor will justify us. We, already being saved by grace, through faith in Christ's work alone, we work with joy and assurance to make much of Christ and our Heavenly Father. That's the Christian life. And then the Master promotes his servants. And I don't think it's over-interpreting, especially if you look over and just, if you want to study it today, Luke chapter 19 where there's the corresponding passage, parallel passage to this one, little different, little, some different elements in it. The monetary unit is different there and some other things. But I don't think it's over-interpreting this to see that one of the rewards that Christ will re- give his faithful servants is more responsibility in the age to come. See, we are, we're headed for a new earth. We're not going to be existing in an ethereal, immaterial heavens for all eternity. We will someday be resurrected in physical bodies on a, and live in a new earth, and there will be entrusting of responsibilities to us. If we are to understand this in Luke 19 the right way, I would, I would submit. What this will look like specifically, I don't know. All right? I, I don't know. But... I don't think it's over-interpreting to see that the response of, the, of our master to our faithfulness here will be to entrust greater responsibility in the future. Just imagine that, a time when you can oversee Christ's possessions, no sin in your life, no fallen world to exist in, no envy, all your work is fruitful, no frustration, no sickness, no death. Now that is a place that will be really fun uh, exercise oversight over Christ's possessions. All of this, all of it, however, is an undeserved gri- uh, gift. The talent that corresponds to the ability and the ability itself are gifts from God. Our right relationship with our master is a gift from God. Our commendation from our master is a gift from God. The promotion is a gift from God, and it's all topped off with our master's joy. Welcome, enter into the joy of your master. A true servant of Christ can anticipate the warm, joyful welcome of his master upon his death. It's what James Bynum, I trust, heard. It's what we all long to hear. And if this is foreign to you, or if you have no desire to use the resources God has given you for his glory, it can't change by getting busy and just doing more. That's not going to change it. Eventually, you'll just flare out and and give up and go hide your talent in the ground. You need to be changed by beholding your master Jesus Christ in the gospel. He was the good and faithful master by living a perfectly righteous life that you could have never lived. He died paying the penalty that you have earned by your sin. He paid it all in your place. There's nothing left for you to do but to turn from your sin and to trust in him and his work. 
You don't start managing the resources until that is settled. So you come to Christ and you behold him as the good and faithful. Master, he's done everything for you, for your salvation, to put you at rights with God. So now you can manage his resources in freedom and joy and without the fear of condemnation. But if you haven't come to Christ and his goodness, you will eventually hide your allotted portion in the ground. And you won't multiply it for Christ's sake. And then we see that what your end will be will be final judgment. Not because you didn't work hard enough, but because you didn't trust in Christ. But for those of us who do know the Master, let us make it our daily aim to live for that wonderful sound and that reward of hearing Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the goodness of your word, the delight of your word, how it captures our imagination, it captures our attention. But we're also just so happy and joy, uh, overjoyed at how you not only provide for us salvation, but you then provide for us work to do for your glory. You entrust to us a stewardship. How could that be? We're sinful, yet you, you make us faithful. You enable us. You provide us everything that we need to carry out the calling that you've placed in our lives. What grace, what wonder that is. God, I pray that this message, these truths would encourage your people to exercise even more diligence, to anticipate, to look forward to, to strive after that sound. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.